Hello and welcome to episode 1765 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs and I'm joined today by Emma Bacheleri of Sports Illustrated. Emma, how are you? I am great. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining me. We are going to talk about Bob Melvin. We're going to talk about the World Series matchups that are to come. But first, I thought that we would start with your road travels. You are one of several um, itinerant reporters uh, going from place to place as part of the postseason. And I think this is interesting to people. It is interesting to me as someone who prefers to be home more than anywhere else, really. What is what is the month of October like for you from a travel perspective? Yeah, it's, uh, as you said, it is a lot. And it's, <laughs> you know, the sort of thing where, of course, I'm extraordinarily lucky to get to do this. And sure. the actual baseball itself is wonderful. And you, of course, don't want to sound ungrateful for that because I do try hard to be as grateful for that as I should be. But um, I would also really like to sleep in my own bed. And yeah. I am very much looking forward to being able to do that uh, within a week at the latest. Although, gosh, another week right now sounds like quite a long time. Yeah. Um, but yes, <laughs> it, it is kind of a grind. So where have your travels taken you so far this postseason? I was actually, I consider myself lucky in that I did not have a CS assignment. So I got a break in the middle. But yes, I started with the ALDS in Boston and St. Pete. So that was about a week back and forth between those cities, which are are not very easy to pack for in October. Very opposite weather. (laughs) Then I was home for about a week, which was nice. And then I was off to Houston for the start of the World Series and am now in Atlanta. You were recording this from your Atlanta hotel. You know, last year was just so deeply strange for any number of reasons, but one of them was that all of the media access that anyone had was conducted over Zoom. What has it been like to be able to be not only back in the press box, but on the field, in the dugout, talking to people face-to-face? It really is lovely. Just because, I mean, I think no matter what you do, any job done over Zoom long enough starts to get very grueling there's just a a sameness to it and just a a lack of connection like even when you're talking to someone who you might know decently well and and have good banter with you know doing that over zoom enough just I have found kind of presses the the joy out of it but like in any situation even with like zoom happy hours with friends after after a certain point it's just like oh like this platform does not really makes it hard for you to uh actually have a, a good time with whatever you're doing yeah and so yeah just to you know we're, we're not in clubhouses yet that that's something that will take longer I think yeah. to, to get back in terms of access but yes just being on the field and, and even just being on the field and even when you're not talking to anyone just the experience of being down there and just watching you know BP or in field drills or whatever it is it, it is very nice to have the physical connection and the sense of place that comes with being able to actually uh, experience things outside the computer Yeah, I would imagine that rapport is dramatically improved when you're in person and can kind of react to like all of the small indicators that we always get in the course of a conversation about like how a particular question is being received and, you know, how long it like kind of takes for them to think about it. And you have the video component with Zoom, but there is something about it being mediated that I think blunts our ability to sort of interpret that stuff with any kind of accuracy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also when you're talking about the difference between a Zoom's use as an official setting for a, right. a press conference versus just even if it's 
a scrum of several reporters and it's very much a, a media appearance, you know, standing and talking with eight people around you versus a, an official setting of Zoom and what that lends to it is a quite different. So it's quite nice. Yeah. So when you're on the road, uh, are you able to make time for yourself to like go explore places? Have you seen bits of Houston or Atlanta or St. Pete, I suppose, that you otherwise would not have been able to engage with if you weren't there? Not as much as I would like. I find it, you know, it's easier during the regular season when you do road trips, just because with the playoff media schedule is a little different. You have to be at the ballpark earlier. And so it is a little bit more difficult to make time. Even when you have a the best intentions. There was this art exhibit I wanted to see in Houston. And I was like, you'll wake up one day, you know, early enough to make right. sure you can go. And uh, that did not happen. Um, although maybe if we go back for, for a game six and seven. Here in Atlanta, I have been very lucky to uh, got here yesterday, realized I had lost my AirPods on the plane. And that meant I got to go to the Cumberland Mall. Oh boy. Yes. Experience a, a, a brand new Apple store brand new to me. And but it was actually quite nice. I love the mall. I live in DC where I, I don't have a, a good suburban mall. Uh, I mean, there are good suburban malls, but I don't have a car. I live in DC, not out in Tyson's where the good mall is. And so yeah. it's been a while since I had just walked around a nice giant suburban mall and I had a really lovely time. I appreciate all of the things that make the mall kind of soul-sucking to a lot of people. So we are not we're not necessarily trying to like bring back the mall or the suburban sprawl that often accompanies it. But, you know, especially after the last year, there's something real nice about being able to walk into a store and walk around and like touch the thing that you might buy rather than having it delivered to you. It, it is like the tactile experience of it is is really nice. You can get a pretzel, you know, like get that Cinnabon smell. That's really great. The smell of Cinnabon, ugh, they should bottle that and make it available everywhere. It, yeah, just walking in, smelling the Cinnabon, just taking a nice stroll, seeing all the people shopping. Yeah. I genuinely did enjoy it, uh, which is not something I expected to for a you know annoying errand to run getting off a plane. So yeah. thank you to the mall. Yeah, I think that um, malls and ballparks, especially when they're in places where you don't live and aren't familiar, are just like such wonderful people watching opportunities. Yeah, you're like get a sense of the place. Like, what are what are these folks like? And granted, like the sense of place that Atlanta has given where they have chosen to locate their ballpark is like not quite what it once would have been, but it is probably illuminating in its own right. Yes. Well, we hope that you are able to get some sleep and enjoy, you know, an art exhibit in Houston because that would mean that we get more more games here. But I think one of the great things that has emerged from your travels is some just lovely reporting, which is unsurprising from the the woman that brought us the mud guy. We learned about the <laughs> mud man. And I wanted to take a chance to to talk about one piece in particular that you did because I think it'll be especially interesting to our listeners who have grappled with the efficacy of the shift for a long stretch. I know that this is both a, a well-utilized strategy or at least an often-utilized strategy, and its efficacy is sometimes in doubt. We've spent a number of episodes devoted to that. And Atlanta went through quite the shift in its shift usage over the, the course of this season, one of many things that has sort of ended up moving the needle for them as they went from being a team that was under 500 to one that's in the World Series. And you had a chance to talk to a number of people involved in the organization around this particular question. So for our readers who haven't had a chance to to take a peek at your piece, what did you discover about Atlanta's adoption of the shift? 
Yeah, so it, this is a, a pretty drastic change. As you said, you know, they had been dead last in shift usage last year in baseball, less than 10% of pitches they shifted on. They'd been toward the bottom of MLB and, you know, 2018, 2019, like it was a, a longstanding thing that they didn't really shift. Yeah. And this year they completely changed that, although they didn't start off the year changing it, which is kind of interesting because when you're talking about as big of a strategic change as that is from going from someone who basically doesn't shift at all to shifts more than almost any other team in baseball, yeah. save the Dodgers, they're number two now. Like something that big, that seems like something you might roll out in spring training, have a bunch of one-on-one conversations or a presentation. It, it doesn't seem like something you do in literally one day was the case for them. But as it turned out, you know, it was something that Alex Anthopoulos and the front office had been considering maybe ramping up for a while and finally kind of hit a breaking point in May. Towards the end of May, they had it was a homestand with a series against the Mets and then a series against the Pirates. And after that series against the Mets, you know, they just had a, a few clear instances of balls that could have been caught with a different defensive alignment. Yeah. So the next day, Anthopoulos went down to talk to Ron Washington, who's their third base coach and also, you know, infield defense coach and had this idea of like, okay, I'm going to bring this up. You know, maybe we're going to see, is this something we institute gradually if he's okay with it? Like maybe we'll, we'll do some drills. We'll work on it more pregame and over the next couple of weeks, we'll institute it. And Ron Washington was like, no, if you, if you want to do it, like we're going to start doing it tonight. And <laughs> they did. And they like never looked back. And that's basically just what happened. And, you know, that's an infield that has a lot of talent in general, just in terms of, you know, general ability between sure. Albies and Swanson and, and Freeman and um, Austin Riley. And it, but they got considerably better as a group once they started changing their alignments a bit. Well, and I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed both about this piece and sort of the insight that it gave me was that, you know, not only did they have buy-in from Washington, but they they sat that infield down and they had a couple of front office personnel there and and Brian Snicker was in the room and they sort of talked through not only the logistics of the shift, but what it feels like to actually be participating in that and some of the moments where, you know, the infielders had insight about what it would be like to actually be going through the motions of doing that. And it seemed like such a smart way to approach this because I think that part of what we hear from players, especially pitchers around the shift is that they really hate it when a ball kind of makes its way to the outfield that were they in a traditional alignment would have been, you know, caught or, you know, thrown for an out. And this, it seemed like they, despite their haste in in implementing it, really did manage to get ahead of any of those questions by how they approached implementing this for their infield. Yeah. Like, like you said, they had a meeting after they, they made the change that night. And then a few days later, they all sat down together. And it does make a lot of sense. Like, as you said, no one wants to ever make a mistake or feel like they're in a position to do something wrong. You don't want to be the the pitcher, certainly, that is watching these balls go by behind you. You want to have understanding across the group of, like, how is this going to work? And, like, you can, you know, point to the statistics of how often it works and what that means. But I think it is different to, like, sit down and be like, okay, how does everyone feel? And, like, what can we work out together to make sure everyone's comfortable? which I think just generally is a, a good way to run a workplace, which this right. kind of is, it, it literally is. <laughs> and it just, it, you know, it, it makes sense. You want people to feel good. No one to feel like they're in a position that they're not comfortable with or they, they don't really know what they're doing. And 
So that was a, a big part of it for them. And another component of that was that they give the pitchers the final say that if, you know, because they've had this general work of getting buy-in across the board, the pitchers are generally pretty comfortable with having a, a shifted defense behind them, but that they, they do have a system where if the pitcher says like, I'm not cool, like, please go back to a traditional alignment right now, they're given the right to do that basically and just to call them off. It does seem like an approach that would be a good one to replicate when you're trying to integrate sabermetric concepts into gameplay because it doesn't treat anyone in the process as having a a more inherently informed voice on a question, right? Like the infielders were bringing their expertise, the front office folks were bringing theirs, and everyone gets to kind of chat through the parts that are either exciting or confounding to them, but they're doing it on kind of a level playing field in a way that I imagine if you're a player and you're used to having all of this, you know, like stats and stuff thrown at you is probably a really welcome shift in approach. Um, And I don't say that about like the, you know, Braves front office in particular, but just front offices generally, where being granted sort of your, your own expertise in a moment has to really change the way that you enter those conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. This didn't end up in the piece, but in talking to Anthopolis, who's been there since 2017 and obviously has been around front offices, you know, long before that. He said one of the something he tried to do that season, his first season with the Braves, was he was focused more on outfield positioning. Mm-hmm. And he had Nick Markakis, who, you know, was the most veteran outfielder they had, a little more traditional in some ways. And Anthopolis asked him, like, can you, you know, think about doing some different positioning. I'll give you this card that, you know, that now is ubiquitous that you'll put Mm -hmm. in your pocket. And Markakis was like, I'll put the card in my pocket. Not like I'll look at it or I'll, you know, I'm willing to like really entertain this. And that, and eventually that changed over the course of the season. But Anthopolis said that kind of made him realize like, it can't just be, here's your card. This is what you're doing. It needs to be a process more like what we saw them do here. And I think in general, over the last four seasons, you've seen what was already happening in terms of kind of those traditional barriers between front office and on-field stuff being broken down even more. And I think this is kind of just another example of that, that it's not really, you know, these are two separate entities. It's everyone working together. Yeah. And I, I do I do love the the primacy that Ron Washington has in this story because I, I liked the way you framed this, that we shouldn't think of him as as strictly old school. Like he clearly has insight that's really valuable here and a willingness to to implement stuff that he thinks will work and who like truly who better <laughs> to get an infield prepped for this kind of thing. It's like I'm sure every team in baseball is like, oh, how much we had Ron Washington to like run our shift to the shift. That sounds great. Yeah. And it's, you know, of course I I this came out I think the morning of game one and then in game two there were several like just not the best infield play for sure. them. And yeah. a couple of moments of, of balls getting through, you know, being hit the other way to escape the shift. And I was like, oh, I thought this would be the one thing that could be like evergreen throughout the <laughs> series. And of course it is not. But yes, as we as we saw in the story, they clearly are, are committed to it and uh, one game will not throw them off. So Yeah. I think that once you've gotten over the initial shock of that being just a reality of any strategy, right, you're never going to field every single ball cleanly. And especially if you've had a couple of games in a row where 
balls have gotten through that would have been gobbled up if they had been shifted. I imagine that that's a, a starting point where you're able to sustain your confidence in a strategy for much longer than if there hadn't been the buy-in that they had and they hadn't had that prior experience. They're like, well, we remember what it's like when it doesn't work the other direction. So this is probably pretty sound, at least for a while. <laughs> Right, exactly. I want to leverage your in-person experience a bit more and ask you what it is like to be at one of these very, very long postseason games in person because there has been a tremendous amount of discourse on the length of playoff games. And I think that even the most like stalwart uh, baseball fan will admit that when you're, you know, when your average runtime is approaching four hours, uh, we're not there yet, obviously, but it seems to creep up every year, uh, that perhaps things are not as efficient or as easy to watch as they uh, ought to be. So what it is, what is it like to be in ballpark during one of these games? Because, you know, when a fan gets bored, they can just leave, but you have to stay until the game is done. Yeah, it is true. I, I, I cannot just leave. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought game one provided a really interesting like, look at the difference between pace of play and mm -hmm. length of play and that's the sure. first couple of innings were extremely long but also pretty exciting like there was a good amount of traffic on the base paths stuff was happening there it was good baseball to watch even though i think i mean the first two innings were i think it was like almost an hour it was yeah. they were very long innings and then after that the game just kind of slowed to a crawl and it like was taking about the same amount of time but was proceeding much more slowly and less interestingly yeah. In that, you know, through those first couple of innings, I had seen some of the, the, the Twitter discourse of like, this is taking forever. And I was like, but this is great baseball. Like, I'm having a great time. And then yeah. like two hours later, I was like, well, not so much anymore. Right. <laughs> and so, I don't know, that to me is still the big dividing line of like, there are some long baseball games that are genuinely great baseball sure. games. And then there are others that are very much not. And um, yeah, I mean, I know there are like big picture concerns with television and fan interest and all of that stuff that game one I think ended up being it was over four hours I believe like four hours and six minutes or something yeah. and I know nobody wants that but in terms of the experience of it like as long as it's you know a pleasure to watch I, I don't mind the other part so much which is yeah. also helped by the fact that I'm not someone with a a print newspaper deadline to meet. I know I, sure. some of the writers <laughs> very much have reasons for different motivations on that that count. But yeah, I, I haven't been like, oh God, at any point yet. Although the, the later innings of game one did test me somewhat. Do you have a preferred approach to sort of uh, solving those issues and helping to not even, like you said, not even to necessarily shorten every game, but to pick up the pace? I like the idea of a pitch clock. I have seen a few minor league games with it. Don't find it intrusive. You know, I would be shocked if we don't get that more substantively integrated to the major league level yeah. soon. Other than that, I'm kind of torn. You know, I, I know there are, I, I think one big thing for the playoffs is that the commercial length times are increased, although I know that's never going back, yeah. but that would certainly help. You know, I, I know there are various suggestions of on ways to stop batters from stepping out of the box so much I'm not sure how if there's a good way to curb that without being unnecessarily strict about it but yeah I think for now like the pitch clock is the one that just stands out to me and it, it makes a lot of sense and should just happen already yeah that seems to be the emerging consensus at least you know that is that is certainly the way to do it while being 
potentially the least intrusive to the the game as it's played now and like you said so many of these guys have have used it before that's not like it would be completely new territory for them so i think i i think i tend to agree there's a there's an emerging effectively wild stance on this question that our guests are providing it is always weird to record podcasts surrounding the World Series because unless you're doing it like I did yesterday on an off day, you know that you're going to post something that is pretty quickly out of date. But we we have the, the lovely uh, benefit of three games. We know we are not facing elimination tonight. And I thought that we would perhaps use a listener email as a way to talk about the, the series as it will be played in Atlanta. So this is from listener Josh, uh, part of a longer email he, he sent that says happy world series just now after learning that charlie morton will be out for the rest of the series a braves fan friend texted our group chat should we be allowed to adopt a replacement from a team we vanquished get max scherzer in there needless to say i love this idea i bet you do dead arm and all if we adjusted the rules of the playoffs so that each time a team won a series they could draft a player from the team they vanquished it would be very awesome and we would learn a lot about what teams feel their weaknesses are headed into the next round of play here's my question for both the world series teams who would you have drafted from their championship series opponents if you're the braves do you draft scherzer like my friend suggested or do you go with a pitcher with more bullpen experience like julio urias might you instead take will smith and upgrade one of the holes in your lineup similarly (laughs) it would just be wildly confusing to have multiple will smiths on the same team (laughs) similarly if you're the astros and as an aside the Astros are in need of a catching Will Smith but that's neither here nor there do you just take a Red Sox smasher Schwarber Martinez Hernandez Devers whomever or do you take Ivaldi to shore up your rotation or do you strengthen your bullpen with Nick Pavetta so Emma we're going to do a little mini draft and by mini I mean we'll probably each just pick one person but let's start with Atlanta if you were Atlanta and you could take anyone on the Dodgers to address areas of team need who would you take as much as I love the idea of a, a double Will Smith uh, <laughs> roster tandem, I just think you have to go with pitching here. Even if even if this draft was presumably would have taken place before game one, sure. before you knew about uh, Charlie Morton, I, I think even in that case, you know, especially without, you know, uh, having been hurt, knowing that your pitching depth was not as uh, considerable as it had entered the playoffs, I mm-hmm. think... I really like the Scherzer pick. I think I would go with that just because that gives you the flexibility of either as a additional starter, which I would imagine would be the most straightforward way to use him, or as, you know, a bullpen super weapon. I think also just the sheer brain power and insight you get from adding him who not only just faced you, but also faced you for a very long time in the NL yeah. East with Washington. I, I think it's hard not to go with him. So I would pick Scherzer. I think Scherzer is is the right pick. I think Scherzer or Bueller is probably the way to go just to shore up that rotation. Like you said, even absent even absent and absent Morton, <laughs> you can always use more starters there. I, I do wonder, do you worry about the dead arm stuff? Do you just count on rest being able to remedy that before the next round? It's not as if, you know, Bueller hadn't also been thrown on short rest before. But yeah, I, I would imagine that, that that would be the way you'd go. And I think that if you don't go with a starter, you maybe you just add another good 
right-handed reliever to that bullpen because they're so lefty heavy. And so it would give you another option there. I mean, their, their lefties have been very good. I don't mean to say that they aren't, but you might end up being like, you know, Blake Trinan, come on down. Bruce Stark Ratterall, come try to punch God on our behalf. Doesn't it look like he's trying to punch God as he exits the mound? He really does. And it's interesting because he, like to watch him throw, it's such a relaxed, low-key delivery, which is just a wild thing to say about someone who throws that hard. And then you watch him like step off the mountain and it's like, oh, like there's all the intensity I would have expected to see you throwing like 102 with. Right. It's funny though, if we allow for substitution sort of after game one, I think you definitely go with pitching. And I think you probably go with pitching even if you have to make these selections before the World Series rosters are otherwise set. But, you know, when you think about Atlanta's offense in contrast with Houston's, I do wonder if perhaps you look to some of the the Dodgers boppers and just say, you know, it would it wouldn't be the worst thing to like add one of these bats to the mix. Although, I guess like what do you do? You displace a part of your fantastic rebuilt outfield with Mookie Betts? I mean, yeah, you would do that. You would just be like, sorry, drop right. you to <laughs> ride the bench um a little bit here, but so that's that's Atlanta. What what would you do if you were the Astros and could take someone from the Red Sox? Yeah, when I was originally reading the top half of this question, I was just like, I feel like in like nine out of 10 scenarios, no matter the team or the opposing team, like you're going to want to add pitching depth yeah. because that's such a problem in October. But the bottom of the Astros lineup, it really is such a, a weird experience. So you go like pretty much straight from like, oh, Jordan Alvarez, like very tough out to just a wasteland. Yeah. But, you know, I, I know that they really respect Maldonado as a catcher and don't want to move him out of the lineup despite his bat. And then, you know, you have Jose Siri if, they, you know, the, the speed on the base paths counts for something there. But um, yeah, I despite the, the my general thinking that it's probably smartest to add a, a pitcher, I am a lot more open to adding a hitter for Houston. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm almost interested in taking Will Smith here to replace Maldonado. <laughs> and give give some cross some cross league substitutions. Yeah. <laughs> oh geez, I sorry, I was not thinking there. It's a hypothetical. We can we can bend it however we want to, Emma. That's the great thing about these emails is that we that get to say yeah, you get to yeah. do whatever you want. Then you could also have the added benefit of trying to take who you think your opponent is going to take. Right. Yes. Ooh, I like that. If it's, it's and and the thing about the thing that would make this. Well, in some ways it would make it more fun, although it probably makes the answers more obvious because imagine you go to both of these teams and you just allow them to draft any player from any roster that has been eliminated from the playoffs that had that was a playoff team and has since been eliminated. And then I think both of these teams just take Brewer starters probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, great, we would like a Corbin Burns, please. Can we have one Corbin Burns? And if he is unavailable, can we just go down the rest of that rotation and pluck guys? But yeah, it would be it would be very interesting if they got to draft from a common pool because do you prioritize the needs that are most pressing on your own roster? Probably, but the temptation to like scoop a guy so that your opponent can't have him, I, I imagine that, you know, especially for a team like Houston, that might just be too dastardly to resist right <laughs> that would be great just game three of corbin burns versus brandon woodruff right um, exactly <laughs> but okay i'm glad my like temporary brain confusion there added a little bit of intrigue there but i, I guess i would probably take 
I think you have to take a, a hitter for Houston, even if you're going by the bounds of the uh, original question. You know, I think Martinez maybe. Kike Hernandez, I think perhaps, because then you have the defensive flexibility too. Right. I think that'd probably my, be my answer is take Kike. Yeah, I think that if you're going to take a hitter, he's the one that makes the most sense for Houston because, you know, it's not as if the Red Sox catching core is like that much of an offensive upgrade. I mean, they definitely are an offensive upgrade, but I think that it's the gap is narrow enough that you're probably not looking to their catchers. Poor Kevin Pluecki. No, no more postseason games for you. And if you take Kike, like you said, you get the positional versatility. They already have to deal with what to do with Alvarez when they are in an NL ballpark. So you probably don't want to add Martinez because then you're just compounding that fielding problem and really compounding it because like Alvarez is serviceable in the outfield and Martinez is just patently not anymore. So like that would be bad. I would I would be tempted though if I were Houston, especially after losing McCullers to just take Eovaldi and like say that we have enough of a conveyor belt in the lineup that we can kind of keep rolling with what we have. But I, I wish... See, this is where I wish that we would lean into the fun of strategy more because we talk about the NL and like pitching changes and all of that is true, but you just end up with these long games. This is where you can introduce like fun strategy to baseball and not like monkey with time of game or have endless pitching substitutions, right? Like we should do more of this stuff. Does it make it kind of gimmicky? I mean, yeah, but like in a fun way, right? Like this is fun gimmick. I would very much enjoy this gimmick. I also feel like a lot of players would enjoy this gimmick. Yeah. Like, that's got to be a fun experience. I say this is a, a great suggestion to enter into the record as, you know, next CBA, if we if we take out pitchers hitting and we add the universal DH, this can be our, our fun playoff strategy boost to make up for it. Yeah, I think that that would be great. I, I also remain in favor of playoff teams being able to borrow players from other rosters for the postseason once those teams have been eliminated from contention. And this is not just because I want us to figure out a way to get Mike Trout into the playoffs every year. And Otani too, right? Like you just want your best guys there. The teams would never agree to it because you don't want to lend your player out for use for another squad that doesn't care about what happens to him after October, at least not in the same way you do. But I've been in favor of that. I mean, I've been in favor of that really since Felix just didn't get to go to the postseason (laughs) in the course of his Seattle career. But I think that this strikes the right balance of being a fun gimmick while not being like a weird talk radio suggestion. So good job, Effectively Wild listeners. You remain the best. Are there any other World Series related uh, thoughts that you would like to get on the Effectively Wild record before we shift a little bit to, to Bob Melvin and the Padres? Not particularly. I will say it currently looks very much like rain in Atlanta before oh. Game 3, which I realize will be out of date shortly after this drops, but I will just state for the record and put out into the universe that I would really appreciate it that it not rain, even if that does make Atlanta's pitching management easier and that it would give them max period on full rest for game five. Yeah. Yeah. I am curious to see how they treat this because it's either going to be, even if it doesn't rain as much as it says it will, it'll be like a a steady drizzle and kind of miserable generally. Mm Mm-hmm which is not the the vibe I think anyone wanted. No. But yeah, it's a, another fun strategy wrinkle. What if it rains? Everyone's favorite. Can I ask you a question that um, I have not been to Minute Maid, so I don't know if this is a function of how the ballpark appears on the broadcast. And I, I don't, candidly don't know how it 
compares to like sort of league average. But was your impression of the Minute Maid infield that it was particularly wet compared to other infields? That ballpark always looks like it has gone through a sopping rain like two hours before first pitch. And I don't know if it's just like the, the, the particular infielder that they're using or if they really are just having the grounds crew, you know, water, water <laughs> it down. Did it strike you that way or is this like a weird figment of the broadcast imagination? So it did look wetter than average in real life, but it didn't look, I did see some on TV. It looked extremely wet on TV. Okay. It, lo- okay. it looks like, okay, what it's, a like, question. it's clearly a little damp in real life, but it didn't look, yes, I saw I saw on TV and it looked like it had been drenched and it, it did not look quite that bad in real life. So okay. you are not wrong. It was not as extreme. Yeah, the degree was not as intense. I mean, like, you know, that seems like perfectly reasonable, like, brinksmanship for teams if they, like, if they have, you know, ground ball guys and they want to, like get it a little muddy. I'm fine with that, but I just couldn't tell if my perception of it was was accurate or not. So I it is it is some amount of what, but not an absurd amount of what is what we have arrived at. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I will ask you to, before we, we shift to Melvin, to just sort of give me your expectations for how many how many games we get left, how many more games we are likely to play in the World Series, and then who you have emerging victorious. And you should keep in mind that I don't know who you predicted for SI. So if you have had a change of heart since then, you could you could say it and I wouldn't know and I won't tell anyone. <laughs> so my my SI pick was Atlanta in seven. Okay. I'm now post-mortem loss. I oh, that sounds I hadn't said that out loud. It sounds <laughs> remarkably like post-mortem. <laughs> I think I'm going to go Houston in six. I mean, I, I think a, a big chunk of it is just, I I don't think back-to-back bullpen games for Atlanta, if that ends up being what it is, is quite as dire as it sounds. I agree. Yeah, I thought the way Ben laid it out for fangraphs.com um, mm. was very good and showed the pathway they can get there. But I do think that is just a, like, it's a, a lot in general. And then even though you would then have a travel day if you pick up one of these games, it just, I, I'm not sure I, I see a reliable path for them going all the way here. Although I wouldn't be shocked if it does happen. So I'll go Houston and six. Okay, Houston and six. You heard it here first after a daring pivot from your initial prediction. <laughs> okay, let's talk about. Bob Melvin, the news broke yesterday that the Padres have hired Melvin to manage their ball club. He signed a three-year deal with them, ending a very long and successful uh, tenure with the Oakland Athletics. I find this move fascinating not only for what it means for the Padres, which we should definitely talk about, but also what it might signal for Oakland and how they perceive their sort of competitive picture going forward and what other moves it might portend for them. So I guess let's start with what this means for San Diego. What is your sense of both what what San Diego needed in their next managerial hire and how well Melvin sort of answers that call? Yeah, it's, as you said, it's very interesting just because it's such a about face from not just what they had in Tingler, but I mean, their last three managers were all first time managers, which very much creates a, at least an, an impression of a power dynamic between the, the front office and the manager that is, I think, somewhat different than what you expect when you have someone who is not just not a first-time manager, but someone who has the experience of 
Melvin or some of the other candidates they were reportedly interviewing. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting to me. I, I like it for them. I'm curious to see how it plays out. But yeah, I was not expecting that. Yeah, I I think that it is. I mean, he is so well respected in the game that it would probably be considered sort of a statement higher regardless. But I think especially in contrast to what they have had over the last couple of years, it really signals that they they think that there is like a, a change in direction that is necessary for this club to kind of get over the hurdle and and move forward. I mean, I think it's hard when you have a year like San Diego had where you have just so many injuries and you have a pitching staff that is so hurt for so much yeah. of the season to really get a great sense of of a clubhouse's reaction to a manager because you it's hard to say, to say what is this sucks for us generally like we thought we were going to be playing in October and now we're looking up at both the Dodgers and the Giants and what of it is this particular guy isn't really gelling with our players and I don't know what the what the balance of that is but it will be I think kind of a pleasant departure for them to have someone like Melvin come in and be able to you know give give guidance to some of the younger guys but he's also I think done a good job over over his tenure of not being like overbearing from a a clubhouse culture perspective like I don't think that that's his reputation within the sport so it doesn't seem like last year when Larusa was hired we were like oh god what is this clubhouse gonna do in response to this guy and Melvin clearly doesn't have that kind of a reputation so I'm curious to see kind of how all those guys gel together with him but I would be optimistic plus like you know you're you're staying in California you get to continue to enjoy great weather good food like if you're Bob Melvin you're doing great Yeah, seems like a a great move for him. And on the subject of his clubhouse demeanor, I will say I did a piece on the athletics in 2018 for, I think, for SI. And I described him just in passing as avuncular. Mm -hmm. And the PR staff wrote me a note afterward and was like, we've never seen Bob described that way, but I think it fits very well. And I was like, okay, win for the the SAT adjectives. But I, I would stand by that. I do think he is rather avuncular. And as you said, like by all accounts, not overbearing yeah and so yes avuncular yeah I imagine it's a you know it's a hard thing to strike a balance there because you want to you want to be able to sort of apply a direction and uh, be a leader but you also want to give guys room to sort of flourish and be themselves and and play in a in a fun and loose way um, and finding the balance on that especially in a year where the, the club struggles overall I imagine is a real challenge so I guess if anyone's going to be up to that it's going to be him what do you think this signals for the A's in terms of their direction both sort of immediately for 2022 and then over the next couple of years uh, generally not great yeah. um I guess I mean part of it is I, I'm not sure quite how much stock to to put in this one move because as you said there's a lot of things that are very appealing about this for Melvin just right. in terms of what he's going to not what he's walking away from so I mean who knows maybe like he was just in the, ready for a change like this and who doesn't want to live in San Diego and yeah. you know I'm sure there is, is some of that at play instead of just, you know, wanting to get out of Oakland. But uh, yeah, I would I would imagine it, it doesn't bode particularly well that there, there was nothing that he thought would be there going forward, making him want to stay around for it. Um, yeah. 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 It'll be interesting to see if they you know, really move into full sort of teardown mode. Obviously, their stadium situation is still kind of up in the air, although I know there's been some positive movement from the Oakland 
city council. It's so weird to describe it as positive because it's like, I don't really want the city of Oakland to have to front money for a new ballpark. But in terms of them staying in, in the Bay Area, it seems like there's been some positive movement there. But I wonder if this sort of signals that they think relative to, you know, a Houston team that will be presumably less good next year without Carlos Correa. It seems like it can't be quite as good. And maybe a good Mariners team, Emma. (laughs) Maybe a good Mariners team. And then, you know, at some point, the Angels will probably get their act together and put a playoff team on the field, question mark. Could happen. Don't know. (laughs) I think just like the law of averages dictates that it it should eventually. Like if you run out this roster with with Trout and Otani long enough, but that also doesn't account for angels energy like whatever surrounds their pitching staff yeah no matter who is on it and that is a very powerful force yeah yeah i think that it is one of the um underrated bad vibes in baseball (laughs) (laughs) like if we're ranking the bad vibes i i think that that one's on there and people um people discount it but we really shouldn't because it's keeping two of the game's like brightest stars from playing in october on regular basis and that seems bad it seems bad that we we are in yet another year where we didn't have trout or otani in the postseason although i guess trout's availability would have been in question wouldn't that have sucked if they had managed to like go on some kind of a tear and they finally make the playoffs and then trout isn't there it's sort of like how i feel like this uh atlanta team is the guys they have on the field are great fun but it is very strange that they might win a world series without acuna that seems bad Well, Emma, I want to allow you to return to the mall if you want to do that um, and get to the ballpark on time. Thank you for joining me. What would you like to plug for our our listeners? We'll link to the shift piece, but do you have anything else that folks should check out? I do not. I am on Twitter with my name. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope that you get to encounter the Cinnabon smell soon. (laughs) Likewise. That'll do it for today. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, keep us ad-free, and get access to a few special perks. Robert Beretta, Paul Bellows, Matt Fogelson, Nathaniel Siegler, and David Jacobs. Thanks so much. Speaking of perks, we'll be hosting another playoff live stream for Patreon supporters who have pledged at least $10 a month during Game 4 of the World Series tomorrow, October 30th at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. I'll share details on how to access the stream via the Patreon messaging system tomorrow. And if you'd like to join the stream but haven't yet become a Patreon supporter or are supporting the pod but at a smaller monthly amount, don't worry, there's still time to sign up or increase your support. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for us coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I'll be back next week with new guest co-hosts and new episodes. Until then, enjoy the World Series. up his phone